You're listening to the Dangerous Prayer Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we see how God invites us to grow in Christ-likeness and step into His mission as we learn to pray, search us, break us, unite us, and send us. Today's scripture is from Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to be with you. My name is Kevin. If you're visiting, I want to thank you for joining us. It's good to be back uh, like most of you. Uh, We had a busy holiday. We traveled, and traveling with five kids is always fun and a challenge, and uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, We will remember these days the rest of our lives, but um, as we were with family, one of the things that struck me this holiday season is how often my kids get asked what what they want to do when they grow up. And I just feel like that's a lot of pressure to put on a seven-year-old, especially when they hear it all the time. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, they need to have an answer for it. And it's also interesting paying attention to my kids because they, some, some of them give the same answer pretty routinely. And then others, I feel like their answers change every time you ask them the questions. What do you want to be? I want to be a singer. Uh, I want to be a chef. I want to be an inventor. It's usually really, really big things. Um, but... And people asking these questions, I ask kids sometimes, I won't anymore because I didn't think about the pressure, but you know what you never hear a kid say in response to that question? Like you never hear a kid say, I want to grow up and climb my way up into middle management and work in a cubicle somewhere. (laughs) Like never. You ask them what they want to be, it's always something of consequence and significance. Firefighter, policeman doctor, veterinarian. It's always something big because kids, and they don't even have to be taught it. They just know. They want their life to count for something. They want their life to be marked with and weighted with a significance. And yet I find that as we get older, oftentimes we find ourselves places in life that we never dreamed we would have been when we were kids. And sometimes God leads us there to teach us things. But sometimes we find ourselves and we just get stuck in life. Maybe we get stuck vocationally, where we're doing a job that we don't enjoy, that we don't find fulfillment in, but we kind of don't know what else to do. Maybe it's, it's deeper than that. Maybe we get stuck relationally. Uh, if you're married, maybe in your marriage right now, you've kind of hit this wall in your marriage, this rut, and you're not really sure how to move forward. 
Sometimes we get stuck spiritually, where we remember days of old when our hearts were on fire for God, but we've come into a season where everything just feels a bit gray, and we feel stuck there. I say all of that because we're in this series entitled Dangerous Prayers, and the vision for this series is that we might learn to pray big prayers that can help us get unstuck in life. These are dangerous prayers because they're disruptive prayers. Oftentimes, our prayers, you know, typically, they're for God to maintain or slightly improve our status quo. Either return us back to health or help me get this promotion, but keep things kind of the same way they are. In this series, we're looking at prayers where we're saying, God, blow up my status quo. God, search me. Reveal things that I don't even see about myself. God, break me. I've got way too much confidence. This week, we're looking at the prayer, God, send me. You could also say, God, use me. And on one level, this prayer, it feels pretty safe. I mean, I guess a lot of us pray, and there's nothing wrong. There's something very good about this. We pray, God, will you bless my plans? Will you bless the works of my hands? And there's, that's a totally great prayer. But what Isaiah prays here in Isaiah 6 When he says to God, here I am, send me, he's not asking for God to bless his plans. Instead, it's Isaiah. He's taking his hands off the reins of his lives, taking whatever plans he might have had for his life on the table, and he's saying, God, use me in your plans. My plans don't, they don't really matter anymore. What are your plans, and will you use me? And that's the kind of prayer I want to talk about this morning. What it would look like for us to be a people who would pray to God, Lord, however you want to use me, whatever you want to do through me, wherever you want to send me, whoever you want to send me to, it doesn't matter I'm in. God, it doesn't matter what it costs me. It doesn't matter what I have to let go of. It doesn't matter what I have to say no to in life. It doesn't matter what I need to start saying yes to. Whatever you want for my life, I'm in. And we pray this prayer knowing full well that God might say, okay, I want to send you across the oceans, like the McCrary's, or the Tolbert's, or the Osterdays, or the Spears. We know he might send us across the country to plant a church in a very unchurched city, like the Westbrooks. He might send us across town to a neighborhood we wouldn't normally visit, but need some help, or could use some help. He might send us across the street to a neighbor's home and not the neighbor that we love and we enjoy talking with, but one we maybe try to avoid. Or he might send us across the office to the same type of person. Or we might say, God, hands off, whatever you want to do, I'm in. And he might say, okay, I want you to stay exactly where you are and keep doing what you're doing. Some of you hear this prayer, send me, and you're like, amen. Like, I want out. I could use something new. And I don't know, but there's a good chance that God might say, you know what, you're right where you need to be. But this isn't so much about where we're going with, you know, our physical location. To pray God send me, it's saying wherever I am, I'm going to relinquish the reins. I'm going to offer my life as a blank check with no strings attached. God, do what you want with me. I think of the Apostle Paul in Acts 20. He's talking with some Dear friends, he's about to leave them, and it's so hard. He doesn't want to leave them. He's built deep relationships, but God has called him. And he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. 
even as he's in tears. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. That's the kind of blank check I'm talking about. It's going to break my heart to do this, and I love this, but this is what the task the Lord has put before me, and so I'm going to step into it. And I, I don't know about you. I hope this is true for you. I can tell you for myself, I still want to have this kind of boldness and unwavering devotion, this kind of faith, but I also, it feels really challenging. It feels really hard. You get to a certain point in life and you kind of got your plans and you've got everything laid out and it's hard to say, you know what, but here it's still a blank check for you. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at Isaiah 6. In verse 8 is where he prays, here I am, send me, this big, bold prayer. But what I actually want to focus on is verses 1 to 7, because that's where we see what actually led Isaiah to this place. What, what happened for him and his life and his walk with God that led him to the place where he said, okay, my life's yours. So before we jump in, I would like to pray, and I'd like to invite you to join me in praying as we open God's word. Father, we come to you, <clears throat> and Lord, I, I confess how easy it is for me to get so wrapped up in my own plans, my own schedule, all the details of my life. And I pray for those who are like me here this morning, that Lord, you might expand our vision of who you are, of why we're here on this earth, of what our purpose is, and of the work that you are doing. I pray for people here who feel really stuck in life, that after we work through this text, trusting in the work of your spirit, that, that some of those people might feel a renewed sense of calling to the work they're already doing. And Lord, we know you're going to send people out of this church, people who don't even know it yet. And so I pray that we would be a people who, who hold on to the things of this earth loosely. Lord, we know your spirit's at work in our midst, and we pray that he might move powerfully in our hearts and in our minds as we come to your powerful word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to look at this text under three headings. First, <clears throat> what led to this? It's, we're first going to talk about how Isaiah had an encounter with the glory of God. Second, we're going to talk about the experience that came about because of that. He had an experience of grief and grace. And then lastly, we're going to talk briefly about how those came together and led to an eagerness to go. But we're going to start talking about this encounter that Isaiah had. And it's not abundantly clear when you read this, but if you read between the lines and pick up on some of the context clues, this text actually begins with Isaiah doing something he's done hundreds of times before. Isaiah, he went up to the temple to pray. It's not all that different than what we're doing here this morning. But on this particular day, he went up to the temple to pray and to, to offer his life and service to God in various different ways. And as he was at the temple, something incredible and probably unexpected happened. He encountered God. You know, I was reading one pastor and he was saying, you know, Isaiah went to the temple to worship, and he encountered the last person he thought he'd ever thought he'd encounter in the temple. It was God. He encountered God in his glory. And we know that this, 
this encounter, it wasn't Isaiah's conversion story. We know from the first five chapters that Isaiah believed in God. He worshiped God. He was a man of faith. He was rooted in sound doctrine. He served God. But something different happened here. He already believed, but something happened here in this encounter that changed him profoundly and led him to the place of saying, okay, whatever you want, my life is yours. And what that was is that Isaiah encountered God as he truly is. He got a vision for God as God truly is. He saw God with clarity. And that one vision was enough for him to say, okay, it's yours. The word used here is God's holiness. There's two words. It's holiness and his glory. And they're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. God's glory, it's the sum of his power and his perfections. It's the weight and beauty of who he is. Isaiah, it's like the blinders fell off and he saw God as God really is. And it changed everything. He encountered glory. And I'll tell you, I find preaching on glory to be one of the most challenging topics to preach on because we're talking about God's perfections. And when we start talking about God's perfections, we get to like the limits of language. It's hard to, to put into words things that go way beyond words. And oftentimes what happens in churches and is we, we use even bigger words that are even more abstract to define something like God's glory, and then it just seems like it's something way out there, and it has no relevance to our life. But what this text shows us is it's the greatest need any of us have is to know God in his glory. But words, words fall short. You know, every, most summers I, I vacation to a lake in northern Minnesota that borders on Canada. Uh, and I always go in like July or August when it's miserable here and all of us are wondering why we live in Louisville. And it's 68 degrees, no humidity. And at night, we'll go sit on the docks, and all the lights will be turned off. Um, and it's, it's so hard to describe. But it's not, I'll put it this way, it's not that you, you can see the Milky Way, it's that you cannot not see the Milky Way. Like, it just blazes through the center of the sky. The entire evening, as you're sitting out, because it's so dark and you get this vision, you'll see shooting stars, you'll see satellites swirling around. Every year, we see more of them. You'll see planets, and sometimes the northern lights will creep up over the horizon, and you'll sit there, and you just feel small, and you feel an awe, and you feel the sense of wonder. You start thinking about how big the universe is, and how big just any one of these little dots is, and it's overwhelming, and then sometimes you'll hear the wolves howling across the lake, and it's all of that to say, you have one of those nights, and then the next day, let's say you're talking to someone here in Louisville. It's like, hey, what'd you do last night? I sat on the dock. How was that? How do you describe that? It was cool. It was great. It was really good. It was awesome. Like, there's not language to describe that. And that's just one small corner of God's creation and the angels. You'll notice here in the text, uh, they're, they're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth. And so that's one little piece. And if, if we don't have words to describe that, when we think about God the creator overall, and the most beautiful, 
the most majestic, the most breathtaking things we experience, those are but utter glimpses into the glory of who our God is. Isaiah, he encountered God in his glory. He got to see through it all. And that was the catalyst that led him to say, my life's yours. And I think where this, this challenges me, and I think it'll challenge you too, is I think for most of us, we might, we might agree on some level about the bigness and beauty of God, but for most of us, most of the time, God exists more as a concept in our mind than a living, breathing, glorious reality. I think for most of us, most of the time, like we might believe in God, we might like learning some things about him, we might like praying, you know, praying to him on some level. But most of the time, he's, as Eugene Peterson once said, just kind of this blurred glow of sentiment uh, or sentimentality. And we kind of got our minds around him in some sense. And our faith, what it does, it, it tends to be more of a philosophy for life than a, than a living dynamic relationship with the living and glorious holy God. Instead, when God becomes a concept, God becomes small in our minds. He becomes predictable. He becomes manageable. And we lose kind of any notion of how big he is and the work he's up to in this world. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's an old Welsh preacher. He describes this well. Uh, he talks about how this affects us when we come together in worship. He says, we go, we go to God's house not with the idea of meeting with God, not with the idea of waiting upon him. It never crosses our mind that something may happen. The idea that God may suddenly visit his people, like he did with Isaiah, and descend upon them, the whole thrill of being in the presence of God and sensing his nearness and his power never even enters our imaginations. There is no conception that God may suddenly meet with us and that something tremendous may happen. We must examine ourselves. How often does this vital idea enter into our minds that we are in the presence of the living God, that the Holy Spirit is in the church, and that we may feel the touch of his power? Is there not this appalling danger that we are just content because we have correct beliefs? We expect nothing, we get nothing, and nothing happens to us. I think that's a perfect description of, of what it's like when God becomes a concept to us. And when God becomes a concept, we don't expect anything, we get nothing, nothing happens, and we certainly don't dream of praying, God, my life is yours, where are we going, what are you doing, how can I be a part of it? We might pray, God, I've got these plans and it would be great if you could bless them. But when God's as a concept, he's just small, he's manageable, he's predictable, but when you encounter God in his glory, like Isaiah did, it shakes you. I mean, the texts tell us here that the doorposts, they shook in the vision. We know when, whenever the glory of God appears to people on earth, mountains shake, doorposts shake, the people themselves shake. Because there's a weight to the beauty and glory of God that relativizes everything else. And the only rational response when you encounter God for who he truly is, is to say, my life's yours, whatever you wish. 
So the question becomes, how do we, how do we experience? How can we come to know God like Isaiah knew God? How can we get that kind of vision? Because I don't think most of us want to live with a small vision of God. I don't, want, I don't think most of us want to go through life thinking of God as a small, manageable thing. We want to know him as he truly is, but how can we actually do that? And Isaiah, in some sense, he had a great gift. He got a vision. And we can pray for that. Most of us are probably not going to get that vision. But I would argue we have something better. We have God's word, and we have God's spirit. We have his word that he's given to us, and we have his spirit that dwells in us. In his word, it's not just a dusty book of history. His word is God saying, here's who I am. You want to know the kind of God I am? You want to know the deeds that I've done throughout history? You can come learn about it right here. He's telling us. He's revealing himself to us. And he's giving his spirit to us, given his spirit to us, which opens our eyes to what, what he's teaching. So I think a simple application for us, if we're going to be a people who say, God, send me, it's to pray, God, I want to know you, and I'm going to get into your word. Not just to learn more information, but so that I might encounter you, the living and speaking God. This application, it's not just for newer Christians. I would say it's especially pertinent for those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a good while. Because something happens after you've read a lot of the Bible multiple times where you think you, think you kind of know everything that's in there. But I can tell you, every time I open the word, I'm surprised and I'm challenged. Others of you, you're like... Maybe you're newer to the faith, or maybe you are, you're, you're taking it seriously, and maybe you signed up for a read through the Bible in a year program, and if you have, that's awesome, and most likely you're still at it because you're in Genesis still, and Genesis is pretty intriguing through and through. Usually February or March is when you hit like Leviticus uh, and things slow down. Uh, and I just want to, if that works for you, great, but if you've never read through the Bible, maybe don't even worry about reading through it in a year. Maybe just read through it at whatever pace it takes. Too many Christians have read Genesis 10 times, you know, in some of the Psalms and a lot of the New Testament, but they never got through the rest. And I want to tell you, put your time in there. Jesus said, if you seek, if you ask, if you knock, you're going to find the door is going to be open. It'll be given to you. And if we want to be a people who meaningfully pray, Lord, use me, Lord, send me, my life is a blank check, we've got to know him for who he truly is. We've got to be like Jacob. He says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. We've got to have that kind of commitment. But that's not all. Because Isaiah encounters God's glory, and then his experience after it isn't wonder. At least not how we would define wonder. <laughs> he doesn't see God in his glory and say, wow, he sees God in his glory, and he says, whoa, and not W-H-O-A, W-O-E, a word that means cursed. Isaiah gets a vision of God as he truly is, and it utterly levels him. Cursed am I. I'm undone. I'm coming apart. And I think there are a few things going on with Isaiah here. Number one, he's feeling his smallness. I think most of us, if we get before an ocean, a mountain range, we, we contemplate the stars. We get before anything really glorious or beautiful in this world, we feel small. 
how much smaller will we feel when we get into the presence of the living God? How much smaller will we feel there? And I think a great sign that you've encountered God is that you feel small. You know that feeling of smallness. But there's more going on because he doesn't just feel small. He says, woe is me for I am lost. Other translations, I am undone. One said, I am unraveling. He's in the presence of God and his glory, and he just feels like his whole body is falling apart. Why? For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Which that's bad enough, but then he says, but now I've seen, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And so it's not just that he feels his smallness. He gets into the presence of the glory and holiness of God, and he feels his absolute sinfulness. He says, I'm coming apart. He doesn't say, this is wonderful. He says, this is horrible. And this isn't unique to him. This is actually a pattern we see throughout the Bible. Job, you know, the book of Job, there's Job arguing with his friends, and their arguments aren't that great. Um, But Job, some of his arguments with God, uh, there are parts that really resonate with me, where he's like, why is all this, like, examine my life. Why is all this bad stuff happening? And what did I do to deserve this? And he goes back and forth. And then finally, at the end of the book of Job, God shows up. And if you've never read it, it's worth your time. Because God just says, all right, you've been asking questions. Let me ask you some questions. And he just asks him question after question after question. Where were you when I laid the foundations? Where were you when the morning stars sang together in joy? He asks all these questions Job experiences God as he truly is in the whirlwind. And you know what his response is? I'd heard of you with my ears, now I've seen you with my eyes. I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Peter is with Jesus. He's following him for a little bit. And then when his eyes are open to who Jesus really is, he says, get away from me, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Revelation 6, it tells about a day when the kings of the earth are going to encounter God and his majesty and glory, and they're going to cry out for the mountains to tumble upon them. They're going to cry out to the mountains, fall on us, to protect us from someone who is so glorious and so holy. When you get into, here's the principle, when you get into the presence of God as he truly is, you can't help but feel your sinfulness. You can't help but feel that there is something wrong with you. It becomes clear. I mean, we, we experience this somewhat in life when we get around something that's really valuable. What do we do? Like someone hands it to us, it's like we, we wipe our hands. Let me wash my hands. I don't, I don't want to contaminate it. We get into holy places. I should take my shoes off. I don't feel comfortable wearing my shoes in here. Well, how much more when we encounter God will we feel Something is deeply wrong with me. And that, that's not a pleasant feeling. It's not something people, for the most part, enjoy. And this is one of the reasons that, I would argue, it's one of the main reasons people keep God at a distance. They might have intellectual arguments, but underneath most of those arguments, they don't want to have to deal with this reality. They just don't want to have, like, they want to believe this sense that we're all really, we're pretty good and we're fine. They don't want to have to deal with the fact that each of us is broken at a very fundamental level. This is why people avoid church. 
Because if you don't, you don't want to be, be reminded of your sin, church isn't a good place to come. I don't know if you've noticed that. Every week, we sing songs about our sin. It's in our liturgy. We confess and we repent. We open up the word and we talk about it. Even taking part in the Lord's table, we're being reminded of Christ's body that was broken for our sinfulness. And so some people, they're never going to encounter God as he truly is because they just don't want to experience that. But I would say it's not just irreligious people who try to avoid this truth. Very religious people do as well. Religious people try to avoid the reality of our sinfulness. We just do it differently. Like they will, on one level, we'll say, sure, we're, we're sinners. We're all sinners. But then there's always the, but they're really sinners. Religious people, they avoid dealing with their own brokenness and flawedness by playing that toxic game of comparison, which is exactly what the Pharisees did and which is exactly why they were dead men walking, according to Jesus. Because they thought that they were righteous, they thought that they were good, but in the end they were refused to acknowledge their own sin. And I would say both the irreligious and religious people who, who want a faith, a living, breathing, daily faith that avoids the reality of God's holiness and our sinfulness, they don't really want a, a real faith. They want a sentimental faith. They want that blur of vagueness and warm feelings. And the problem with that blur of vagueness and warm feelings is it doesn't help people. It offers no hope. And it offers no healing. And we live in a culture where we, we, people speak words of affirmation all the time. And you can download audiobooks where someone just tells you over and over again that you're good enough and you're smart enough and people like you. And you can hear it again and again, but it doesn't actually heal you. Because we still know something is wrong. What Isaiah shows us is if you want to get to a place where you say, God, here's my life, it's yours. You get verse 8, you can't get there by going around verses 5, 6, and 7. You can only go through. And I think we're afraid to go through because we're afraid of condemnation. We're afraid of feeling miserable. We're afraid of falling into utter despair. But what I love about our God is these stories, they don't end in despair. You think it's going to end in despair. You think he's going to say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I've seen the king, and I know what happens to people who see the king in their sin, and they keel over and die, but that doesn't happen here. The story doesn't end in despair. Yes, there's grief, but then there's a profound moment of grace because then we're told in verse 6, one of the seraphim, that's one of the angels, and don't think of a chubby baby uh, like precious moments. Think of a pretty, you would be terrified if you encountered one of these beings. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, uh, if you're not familiar with the, the architecture of the temple, that's okay. Not a lot of people are, but the, t the uh, altar in the temple, it's important to note it wasn't just a piece of furniture there. When he says he took a coal from the altar, well, the altar was a very significant place. The altar was the place where blood sacrifices were made. 
It was the place where forgiveness was found. It was the place where sin was atoned for. And the system God set up, he always set it up as a temporary system to constantly remind us that he's holy and we're sinful and we can't just stroll into his presence. And so the the pattern we see throughout the Old Testament is that people, they kind of come into the temple and, and the goal is to get all the way to the altar and then to sacrifice a substitute in your place. Like that's how you get all the way in. You bring it, you go through all these cleansings and all these other things, which again, they didn't save you. They revealed, they were, they were a teaching device of God revealing how great our sin is and how holy he is. But what's so fascinating about this is what did Isaiah do? Anyone notice? He didn't do anything. He said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he did nothing else. He didn't go up to the temple with his sacrifice. He didn't climb on the temple himself like I'm ruined and I'm undone. He said, woe. And then the angel took a coal from the altar. It's probably from a fire used for burnt sacrifices brings the, the coal, and it's a fascinating imagery. You, you think maybe the coal's going to just reduce Isaiah to ashes when he touches his lips, but instead it heals him. And he says, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah, he didn't lift a finger, but he found forgiveness and he found healing. And I'm sure Isaiah knew of God's ways. He knew God's declaration that he was compassionate and slow to anger and gracious. But in that moment, as that coal touched his lips, the idea of God being gracious, that had to go from being a theory or a statement of belief to being a reality. Because he saw him in his holiness and he was still standing. And I submit to you what Isaiah experienced there, it was nothing but a shadow of what God accomplished through sending his son. I mean, Isaiah talks about it again and again. Isaiah 53, one of the most famous chapters talking about the work that Christ is going to do. But it's a pattern that's laid forth here, not people moving to God in their sin and cleaning themselves up and doing a bunch of religious rituals. It's God moving to people in their sin in his grace. And when Isaiah, who felt that shame, that nakedness, that filthiness, hears God saying, you're clean and you're forgiven, your sins are atoned for, it was after that, the glory, the grief, the grace, it was after all of that that we read in verse 8, Isaiah saying, after this, I heard the voice of the the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And I... I'm reading between the lines here, but I read this as Isaiah like the kid in the front row of the classroom. Like God saying, who will I send? Who will, who will go for me? I envision him as the guy who's got his hand up in the air and he's kind of dancing around in his seat because he experienced the glory. He went through that valley of grief. Then he came out on the other side on the top of the mountain of grace and he hears God saying, all right, who's going to go? And he's like, I, if I can be in your presence, could I could I potentially be the one who goes? Now, he believed in God, but what happened here, I think there were two major shifts that happened. The first shift, 
is that Isaiah wasn't just willing, he was eager. Because he no longer saw serving God going as an obligation, he saw it as an opportunity. I think most of us, even, even when I, I talk about the kind of prayer that Isaiah prays here, I think we feel a little unease. What if God calls me to something that's really, really hard or, or calls me to do something I don't want to do or, or put something on me that's really uncomfortable? I think we're afraid to pray because a lot of us, we still, in our mind, we think that serving God and stepping into his work in this world, we see it as an obligation. It's something we're supposed to do. And some of you, you feel like, if I do this stuff, then God will bless me, he'll love me, he'll delight in me. If I don't, then he's going to be disappointed in me. Isaiah, he already encountered God at his worst moment and experienced grace. So he's not stepping into this like, man, maybe I can earn some favor with God. God just said, you're clean. He steps in because he sees that it's an opportunity. And I think a challenge we have to get over is thinking, well, this is just part of what I have to do. It's an obligation. Instead of seeing no, serving the Lord and stepping into his mission, what we're, we're getting to do is we're getting the privilege of taking part in the most important, most critical, most glorious work in human history. Like there's nothing better, nothing more important. Oftentimes we're asking God to bless our plans and our plans are so small. And like, they're plans that, that are going to turn to dust 10 weeks, 10 years. But to serve him, we're serving, I mean, we're working towards an eternal city. Isaiah sees it and he says, okay, I'm in. Blank check. That's the first shift. The second shift, though, see, not only says blank check, he also says no strings attached. He says, I'll do whatever. And Isaiah didn't evaluate the call God put on his life through the lens of the prospect of success, but rather through the lens of the, the privilege to participate in life with God. Here's what I mean when I say that. A lot of us, if we feel God might be calling us to something, our first instinctual response is to run a cost-benefit analysis to examine what's the return on investment. God wants me to go there. Well, will it be successful as I measure success? How many people will we see come? How big will it get? Will their lives change in this matter? Will they give in this way? We, we evaluate what's the return on investment. And if the return on investment looks pleasing to us, then we say, all right, I'm in. If it doesn't, a lot of times we pull back. But if that's the way we relate to God, then we're not obeying his call. We're just agreeing with him on certain things. We're allowing him to be a consultant, not to be Lord. And what's fascinating about this text, and I didn't have Hannah read this part because it's really challenging. Um, so after Isaiah tells God, I'm in, like, I'm in. Here I am. Send me. God, you can read this. God says, okay, go and say this to the people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. This is your sermon. And then God tells them, this is the goal I want to come out of your preaching. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. <laughs> it's like, I, I'm here. I want to tell the world of your glory and your grace. 
And God's like, okay, go preach the hardest sermon you can imagine. And Isaiah's like, all right, so there's a sermon. I'm going to lead him. It's going to lead him to repentance, though. So he says, okay, God, how long exactly do you want me to preach that sermon before I preach this other sermon? And God responds, you're going to preach that sermon until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Think about that. <laughs> You're going to go preach this sermon and no one's going to like it. No one's ever going to send you like an encouraging email after, hey, that was really good and convicting. They're all going to say it was boring because their ears have become dull and their eyes have become blind. And you're going to keep preaching this and preaching this, and your congregation is going to shrink smaller and smaller until you're the only one there. And you know what? Isaiah did it. You know how I know? Because we have the whole book of him doing it, of him talking about it. And he did it. He stepped into this knowing God told him, you're going to do this and you're not going to see any fruit. Just be faithful. And Isaiah said, okay. God did give him a promise, the holy seed in the land. He gave him this promise of a remnant, this promise that, that there will be fruit. You're just not going to see it. Just like planting seeds. You plant seeds and sometimes it takes a long time for the plant to emerge. He said, you're going to go and you're going to be faithful you're never going to see any fruit, but that doesn't mean there won't be fruit. But what I want you to do is go and be faithful, even if it's hard, even if you face opposition, even if people don't like you, because in doing so, you're helping to move my mission and my purposes forward. And Isaiah says, okay, and he goes. Because I think Isaiah recognized in that point that more important... <clears throat> than the worldly prospects, more important than our vision of success, was this vision he had of participating in what God was up to in the world. And recognizing he got a role that maybe he wouldn't have picked for himself. I don't know many of us that would enjoy taking that role. But that's the role that God picked for him. And he said, that's okay. As long as I get to be on the team. As long as I get to play, I'm in. That only comes when you have a vision of God that is so much greater than just a concept. And so I want to ask you a couple of questions. What might, the first is, what might it look like for you to pray, God send me or use me? What would it look like for you to pray, my life's a blank check? And then there's another question, which is probably the bigger question for a lot of us what is it that keeps me from offering my life as a blank check? When you think of actually praying, I mean, praying this is like praying for humility, which if you've never done, it's a really, Lord, humble me. You know, you know it's going to be hard going after you pray that prayer. Praying, God, send me, use me, blank check. You already have an idea that it's going to hurt in some areas. What are those areas? What are the things that you're saying, my life's a blank check except for this account? except for this one string. 
as you consider that, let us, as we prepare to come to the table, be reminded that all of this was a foreshadow and preparation and that the seed who would come into the land was Jesus Christ. And he would come into the land not to make just countless demands on people and make them climb a ladder of religious performance. Jesus Christ came in the land that he might come down the ladder and offer his body for our sin. On the night of his betrayal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that's broken for you, your sin. This is the cup, the cup of my blood of the new covenant that's poured out for you and for your sin so that through his death, we might not only be reconciled with God, but we might join God in his work of reconciling all things to himself. So if you're here and you're a Christian, be reminded of the greatness of our God, of the depth of your sin, but more than anything, of the grace that he has shown you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ. He is the one you were created for, the one you were created by, and the only one you are ever going to find meaning and lasting, sustained purpose in life. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.